Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Let's begin our class today in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. Great to be here. I'm very excited. We have the challenge of way too much to do. Nonetheless, that doesn't mean we need lose our focus. We can keep our focus and try to secure a few things, and let's try to secure what we can. So here's where we're going to begin. We always like to do our best on the question front, and I was uh, handed a, a, a list of your questions. I'm not going to read out the names that are associated with them. Here's the question in a quick response. Please define relativism. All right, jumping, jumping right in. Uh, often a term like that uh, lends itself to slightly different uses in different contexts. Normally when someone tosses off the, the word relativism, it's being used to name a way of thinking that rejects there being a certain objectivity to truth, that the intellect is measured by reality. Really, we could, we could say, uh, remember last time I began with that, with that great line of, is man the measure of things? If man is the measure of things, well, that probably ends up me meaning that in some way each man is the measure of things. And then truth then would be relative to how you are thinking if you are thinking is the measure. So one major form of relativism is that truth is relative to the one that is doing the thinking. Another way that relativism shows up is particularly in the moral realm where we say, well, the truth is relative to the circumstances. Well, you can't say that murder is always wrong because then there are these circumstances, that circumstances, so it would change relative to the particular circumstances. So that's another way the term relativism, I think, is used. And so watch out for that one, too. The next question, is there an aspect of metaphysics that studies how many lever levels slash layers slash number of causes there are? Or is it just accepted there are a lot or a few? Or is it just important that the higher causes cause lower co causes and the number isn't important? It's a great question. I'd answer it in brief, putting it this way. Metaphysics definitely is interested in a hierarchy and setting out different main aspects of that hierarchy. Uh, where we're taking more time looking at the great chain of being, there are there's, there's kind of major divisions within it. Obviously, a major one is between the level of immaterial and material, but there are different levels among the immaterial, and there are certainly different levels within the material where you have living versus non-living. And, and so uh, is it critical to get to kind of an exact, exact number? No, but I'd say all in all to be attentive to 
hierarchy and the diff and different major divisions, different major breaks, and to be attentive to why those breaks are important is very important in metaphysics. It's, it's not so much, again, getting to an exact number. You, you end with a nice question. Is it, is it important that the higher causes cause lower causes? Yes, but ultimately one would want to differentiate there. There are different ways that a, a cause can be higher than another one in different lines of causality and a different completeness of causing the causes below them. God is the total cause of all the causality that's going on him below him. That's very different than the way a, a lower cause will be a higher cause than other causes. So metaphysics would be interested in sorting that all out. Next question. If the science of metaphysics is to be studied last, is there a recommended sequence of studies in philosophy or natural sciences that should be studied before? My background is computer science. This is all new to me. I'm going to make a quick reference for all of you. Uh, the PDFs of that text that I was reading from last time. If, if they go back to that um, prologue that we were looking at another time, but just uh, um, there is herein one of the places St. Thomas and the medievals were very interested in the order of studies. One of the things that makes it tricky is in general, the sciences that they're naming don't even the very words being used or naming sciences that are a bit different than the sciences that would answer to the same name today. And you got to watch out for that. But I'm just going to read you a few lines here. Let me just read this out loud. Hence, the chief aim of philosophers was to consider all things in order to arrive at knowledge of first causes. So the philosophy, the pursuit of wisdom, starts with lower things and goes to higher things. This is a nice review of one of the key points from last time. Things that are more intelligible, more knowable in themselves, are more difficult for us to come to know. So we find more intelligible in the order of our studying and discovery, we find more knowable, more accessible things that are lower and actually in themselves have less to be known. But then by going through them and looking through them and behind them, we can work our way slowly up to things that are more intelligible objectively or as the tradition says, more intelligible in themselves, just objectively speaking, there's the, uh, uh, the angel, there's, his nature is more intelligible. There's more there to know than there is in the nature of a tree. But you and I find the nature of tree more intelligible to us. Why? Because of our mode of knowing, because of our sensation. And St. Thomas likes to, to quote the line of how the highest things, are, when we come before them with our intellect, it's like the owl coming before the sun. Of course, where does this come from? Our old friend whom we're about to refer again. So many things always go back to Plato in his great divided line and the cave. And he captures this great point, this, this key insight in helping us understand why metaphysical thinking is so hard and will take so long and will take so much work is because of this very point of that things that are more intelligible in themselves are by their very richness, they tend to be blinding. Plato saw the usefulness of using an analogy of light. When you come upon something that is very bright, at least at first, isn't this amazing? God must have had this in mind in his generous design of the eye, that we could use this as an analogy for our intellect. At first, the eye is blinded by brightness. As Plato pointed out when he's talking about the cave, there could be two reasons you can't see. One, because it's just simply dark, or it's so bright, 
that the brightness somewhat blinds you. And so when you come up out of the cave, things are so bright, it's very hard to see anything. And he says, you stumble around and you even think to yourself, there's nothing here to see. How many people have had that experience in studying metaphysics? I, I, what is this? It's so much fluffery. There's, there's, what, what's even going on here? What is there to know? It's so difficult that we're not seeing it. All right. So we're trying to come through those lower things to the higher things. That is why they placed knowledge of the first causes last in the final stage of life and begin first. Pause. Isn't that kind of beautiful that God always has the long view? Wisdom is supposed to come with age. Older people have had a lot of time. And isn't it fitting that particularly as other things in their life, as it were, the sun is setting on the other things that younger people find so important, the, the life of an older person, it seems to close in, but it need not really be closing in if through all of this, we've actually come to now focus on the things that matter most. So they arrive at knowledge of first causes later in life. That's why they place the knowledge of the first causes last in the final stage of life and begin first with logic, which treats the mode of the sciences, went on second to math- mathematics. Don't know how, logic is very easy. You can, teach, you can teach high schoolers logic. It doesn't take a lot of life experience to get logic. You have to have a little bit of life experience so that you can just understand the examples that are being used, right? You don't want to teach logic to someone in fifth grade. You can do logic you know, fairly early on in the big picture. Then they go on to mathematics, of which he says even children are capable. Third to natural philosophy, which requires time and experience. Fourth, to moral philosophy, of which the young are not suitable students. Finally, they turn to the divine science, which considers the first causes of being. That's just a very quick listing. It's not our topic now to go go into it more. You asked about the order of, of, of studies. You see it kind of progressively getting higher there. There's just a quick thought in that uh, direction. I like this question. Next up, very quick, we're going to wrap this up. Can you please clarify the difference between wisdom and knowledge? This, first of all, I'm going to use a point from logic, and this is something you can teach to a, to a child. Is there, what, what's the difference between animal and squirrel? Nobody say anything, just, just think. What's the difference between animal and squirrel? It's a very nice logical distinction that answers this. There's a great sameness between them, but then there's also a difference. The difference between them is that they are related as a genus to a species, as a broader kind to a more narrow kind. So what's the difference between wisdom and knowledge? Wisdom is to knowledge as squirrel is to animal. Knowledge is more generic. It's a broader term. Wisdom is a kind of knowledge. And this is a very important point. All wisdom is knowledge. Not all knowledge is wisdom. Obviously, all squirrels are animals. Not all animals are squirrels. Wisdom is a specific kind of knowledge. Now, I just want to note on, on asking this very good, good question, we don't use the term wisdom really so much anymore in modern civilization. That in itself has very much to do with our turn away from metaphysics. The, the meaning, the savor of the term wisdom and its use as naming a kind of knowledge that takes a long time to get to, that you want to spend time working towards, maybe after having come to understand other knowledge or come to other knowledge, all of the point they were just making, that is part of this older and more traditional view to which we're referring. So now, no, granted, even now, 
the very ring of the term wisdom kind of has this sense of mm, something, something, you know, kind of something better. That's not just any old knowledge. Well, that's always the way that the term wisdom rang, rang as this is a special knowledge. And so when Socrates and Plato bring this up, they, they say, all right, well, wisdom, wisdom is not just any knowledge. It's, well, what? It's knowledge of the higher things. Or, and particularly, what does that end up meaning? It's knowledge of the first causes. So wisdom, you see how when, you're de- when you define something, remember from logic, you define something by giving the broader kinds to which it belongs, the genus, and then you give the specific difference. You say what makes it be different from the other things in that broader kind. So if you define wisdom in terms of being a knowledge of the first causes or of the highest things, you've given a genus and you've given the specific difference. You've shown what makes wisdom be a species, a more special kind of knowledge. And I just want to point out, well worth our trying to recapture what kind of knowledge is better than other knowledge? Ladies and gentlemen, all knowledge is not created equal. Some things are more important to study than others, regardless of what high school counselors might tell their students. Think how much power is in the high school counselors and the fundamental assumptions that they have as young students come, where, where, where are you going to go study? And the whole set of assumptions they have about where they're going to go study. By the way, note to parents. I don't mean to put too fine a point on this, but how common is it still that that parents put a lot of stock in the name of the institution to which their children go? And in polite company, like to toss off, well, my child goes to such and such university as though somehow that's, that's in itself good news. Well, once upon a time, maybe that was good news. Maybe today it's still good news. I don't mean to make too particular point other than to say we might need to rethink what we are conveying to our own children about what it is most important to study. It's very clear what high school counselors are doing. They're looking for prestige. In general, they're looking for power. In general, they're looking, directing people towards the things that are going to make more money. I'm not saying that the money is not an important consideration, but can you imagine a high school counselor saying, are you interested in pursuing wisdom? This this is not in our vocabulary anymore. Our last question was, can you distinguish between reason and rationalism? Yes. Rationalism names a particular school of of thinking. I think I probably tossed that term off. That's probably why someone's asking this. I don't remember exactly from last time. Uh, um, Rationalism, reason is, is, in general, refers to the power of reason and its use in many different ways. Rationalism refers to a specific school of thought and then a way of thinking that follows upon it. Descartes father of modern philosophy, also was a particularly major figure in a new and rationalist approach to philosophy. Rationalism is particularly characterized, and this is important here, and that's why I'm taking a moment on it. This isn't just because there's one person out there that might be interested because they asked this question. The person asked this question. Rationalism was a new way of approaching philosophy, the pursuit of wisdom, that very much emphasized the ability of the individual to use his reason and come to great success. If anyone's done any studying of Descartes, You might recall he famously sat down to write his meditations on first philosophy, where he revamped, quote, metaphysics, or what he called metaphysics, by sitting in his stove-heated room, cutting himself off from tradition, and starting it de novo from the beginning in his own mind. Interestingly, talk about the order of studies. In this case, he had studied mathematics a lot, but he had studied it in a particular kind of way that was not a good preparation for philosophy, and it led him to expect that philosophy would be exactly like mathematics. He had so much success in mathematics, he said, I'm going to do that in philosophy. And so 
he he promoted a way of thinking that thought you can you can do it more or less on your own using reason very carefully. It's a kind of overconfidence in reason. The prop the appropriate I'd say approach to the tradition, which is key for metaphysical thinking, is to have a sufficient confidence in reason, but nonetheless a great humility and a great caution and a great sense, which I cannot emphasize to you, ladies and gentlemen, enough, that we need to turn to the wise. One question I love asking my students, what do you think is the first thing you should do if you want to be wise? It's probably worth thinking about where is wisdom? Wisdom to speak precisely, is not in the trees. As much as we can learn from the trees, there is not wisdom in the trees. There is wisdom in wise persons. And if you would be wise, the tradition has always said, as it says in scripture, beat a path to the door of the wise man. That's where we find it. That's where we learn it. And that's what rationalism actually rejected. You don't need to go to the tradition. You don't need to go to the wise man. You can do it yourself. Those are the end of our questions from last time. Let's do this. In the, in the spirit that gave us opportunity to review a couple of things, the spirit of continuing that review a little bit. Remember, I made a distinction between metaphysical thinking and metaphysics, but I'm going to do this very quickly. Just a couple of the quizzes that you all did. I'm going to uh, give you reveal your scores publicly of individuals. Just kidding. All right. No, but I am going to refer to a couple of questions where... Uh, there was a significant number of people that got it wrong, and the other ones I'm not going to mention anything about. Just a quick reminder, metaphysics is called metaphysics because, proper answer, meta means after, In this science is studied after physics, a la the discussion that we just had. Here's another one, metaphysics is called theology or divine science. Why? Well, since most of you got it right, it, it studies God. It is another trick answer. It is not the same as revealed theology. Metaphysics is not the same as revealed theology. There are certain similarities, but revealed theology has a very different starting point. Real theology has a starting point that God has told us about himself, he who is the first cause. So it's going to give us the possibility of a whole new level of wisdom. I'm going to end tonight by saying a few things about uh, the relationship between metaphysics and faith and supernatural theology. They must be distinguished from one another. And we can say a little bit about how they connect with one another. Uh, concerning metaphysical thinking and the science of metaphysics, most of you got this right, but I just want to again emphasize there is a distinction. Everyone should do the former and only some the latter. The science of metaphysics, properly speaking, is a very tricky and difficult thing. Quick sidebar, I don't want to be too controversial here with you in this context, and I, and I don't seek to offend. I think there are some movements out there that are well-intentioned, but are making a bit of a mistake by encouraging people to start to study metaphysics too soon. The science of metaphysics should not be studied too soon. I, for one, am not a proponent of studying any metaphysics whatsoever in high school. That's a little bit of a controversy. I'm not trying to, 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 to ruffle feathers, but I am putting that out there because I think that there's a good basis for that. That's a conversation for another time. But what I particularly want to be emphasizing is there, there's a broader sense of metaphysical thinking 
that all of us are capable of, and it's particularly that here in our talking about metaphysics and even talking specifically today about the science of metaphysics, it's still going to be primarily with the goal of being able to encourage all of us to be able to be doing some more metaphysical thinking. Uh, concerning metaphysics and philosophy, really quickly, the right answer there is uh, there is a distinction. And the former, metaphysics, is just one part of the latter. There are other philosophical sciences. Philosophy, the pursuit of wisdom, is broader than metaphysics, though metaphysics is the highest part. So just to be clear, philosophy names the love of wisdom. It also names several sciences that can be science in the traditional sense of an ordered body of certain or sure knowledge. It names several sciences. For instance, ethics is a science. Natural philosophy, or what Aristotle called physics, is a science, and it is a philosophical science, but it is less than, it is, well, metaphysics, right, after physics. So metaphysics, more specifically philosophy, highest pursuit of philosophy. It's where wisdom most comes to fruition. So ladies and gentlemen, I'm gonna to begin today by uh, taking us back to the cave. A great place to see in the tradition an encouragement of the importance of metaphysical thinking and thinking in terms of the being of things. Quick reminder, remember the divided line of reality? This goes back to, uh, Plato kind of had the original great chain of being. He said reality is like a line, then, then divided, then he made subdivisions within the major division. The major division was above it was the unchanging and the, the forms, and then which were also immaterial, and then below it were the material things. Then you connect that to the cave. The cave was to illustrate education, education in the broader, most important sense, the formation of human persons as a whole. What is education? Particularly, it's to be able to have people come to the highest perspective, to see the highest things, the dragging of people up having them have to change their perspective. And it was a turning, a kind of conversion to go etymological. There was a turning and coming up and out. And remember, it's very bright. It's difficult to see there. But as Plato's student Aristotle would say, what little you see of those higher things is worth more than anything that you would ever see of lower things. And how does Aristotle, how does in the cave, how does Plato characterize it? You're coming out into the realm of what is. It's literally what he says. You're coming out into the realm of the things that truly are. And, and, and when you hear that, you, again, this, you immediately you start to feel that, oh, okay, there, there's kind of that being terminology again. It's that, that very difficult terminology. No, it, is, it is profoundly metaphysical, and that is precisely what a deepening of education he's saying does. It brings you towards the metaphysical viewpoint. It gives you a more of a bird's eye view on reality, it brings you to see things from the viewpoint of being. When you say, when you think in terms, I'll say it now. In metaphysical thinking, that, that where we train ourselves to think in terms of the being of things, you naturally then, if you think in terms of the viewpoint of being, you'll start to think of hierarchy. You will, you will start to see that some things are more than others. You also will start to think in terms of actuality and potentiality, which are two key terms I'm going to hold off on a moment. Plato didn't use those. Aristotle's the master of that, and I'm going to come to that. But just, again, stay with the hierarchy thing for just a moment. Let me put it to you this way. We're talking about very fundamental insights, ladies and gentlemen, that sometimes they're very hard to give an account for. 
So, I mean, do you think do you think that a dog is a higher being than a tree? I'm not exactly sure what would happen if you asserted out there today. I mean, I don't go in 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 the in, in the forum in the in, in the common marketplace of ideas necessarily and try that out. I think a dog's higher than a tree. I, I have a feeling we'd probably get from a lot of people. You know, that's that species. So how, how can you compare a dog and a tree? It's just different, right? They're just different. Is a dog higher? Is it better? Ladies and gentlemen, I'd put it to you this way. Take the viewpoint of being. Don't take this in a simply a crass um, a mathematical quantity way. But there is more being in a dog than there is in a tree. There's more. It is in a fuller way. There's new and higher levels of being here. There, there is a richer being in a dog than there is in a tree, and in, in, in a tree, certainly, than in a rock. And this might just seem to be, seem to be common sense in a sense that it, it is common sense. This is, this is, there's much going here on the intuitive level, but we live in a culture that questions your intuitions with bad principles at every turn, then you find yourself in the awkward situation of being challenged as though somehow you're, quote, prejudiced in the negative sense, the term of having some untrue prejudgment where you thought the dogs were higher than trees and now you've made a mistake. Well, a metaphysical way of thinking is going to help us see hierarchy more clearly. I wanted to begin with Plato's cave again by saying that in Plato's terms, education is going to bring us towards taking a higher view. And also to sum up something from last time and to try to re-solidify one of the main points I want to convey to you about what wisdom is in any case. Note, remember this from the cave. And remember, given our mode of knowing, Plato was the master teacher because he uses sense images that you can remember. Never look down your nose at using very humble sense images that you can remember. And you know, of course, what master of all teachers did that all the time. But going back to the cave, picture coming back down into the cave, and, he, and Plato says, at first, for a moment then, you're kind of blinded by the darkness down there. But when, when you kind of get used to looking at the lower things again, you have a completely new perspective on them because you have seen the higher things. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if there's anything tonight that I'm going to say that's more important than this. Maybe a couple of things. But in any case, wisdom means getting a, among other things, a whole new perspective on what is lower that can never be had unless you have seen the higher. Metaphysicians understand trees much, much much better, dare I say, than your common biologist. There's a higher viewpoint. I don't say that to look down my nose on what biology can teach you about trees. I'm all for it, but not all knowledge is created equal. And we want to fill the picture. The ideal is to have seen those things through the lower lens also, but then particularly by having come to see the higher things that are the reason that trees are the way they are, indeed, are the reason that there are 
trees anyway, gives a whole new insight into trees. The structure of wisdom will always be, you had to work very hard to move through and up to the higher, but now seeing the higher, you see the lower through the higher and you understand everything. That's what wisdom is. You have now an insight where in a sense you grasp the whole because you have gone to the very reasons that the whole is the way that it is. And so how, how is Plato's cave again giving you the way of showing that? Because he says those who go back down in are in a position to try to tell the others about the deeper natures of those very things that they are seeing. And isn't it interesting that in a sense, in that great scary line, only those who have seen have seen. It can be very hard, and most anyone with much experience in life has come upon this at some point, to try to convince somebody of something that the person simply hasn't seen. Of course, how often are we that person? All right, we're gonna go big here for a moment. Thinking, metaphysical thinking, think in terms of being, not only does it teach you about hierarchy, not only is it gonna help us think in terms of actuality and potentiality, but it's also gonna lead us back to God. The being of perspective and seeing things as being and as a hierarchy of being naturally leads us through to the source of being. And indeed, ultimately what even philosophy can tell us is the being that is being. Now here, I'm, I'm about to say, I was about to say I'm going to cheat. It's not cheating. So I think cheating about at, at some point here, even though if we're doing philosophy more proper, we can still advert to a moment for something from divine revelation. In something that is utterly stunning, we do well to remember. God, St. Thomas certainly did. And it made a big difference in his being a metaphysician. In the Old Testament, you know how God revealed himself at that one great moment that he revealed himself in the most unique way. And he used words that the chosen people wouldn't even say. He gave his name and he used profoundly metaphysical terminology. This in itself is, is, is a stunning extrinsic reason to go back to the kind of philosophy and the tradition of Aristotle and Plato, a profoundly metaphysical tradition that sought to get back to being. Right? This, is, this is Christians seeing extra reason to take this approach. All right. There was a question in uh, the, the um, homework quiz that I didn't uh, mention, but that now I, I, I remind you of the subject of a science. Now we're defining metaphysics to science. Metaphysics, the science is the science of being as being. Sometimes we use the Latin word qua instead of the word as. The science of being as being. A subject of a, the subject of a science, St. Thomas explains, is that whose causes and properties we seek. So the subject of metaphysics is being in general. That's normally the way it's put. You could say being as being or being in general. The subject matter of metaphysics, being in general. The subject of a science is what most defines that science. The subject, as I just noted from St. Thomas, he says, the subject of a science is that whose causes 
and properties we seek. So here, here is the science of metaphysics, ladies and gentlemen. It's a science that seeks the properties of being in general, the properties of being, and then also the causes of being. Because it seeks the causes of being, for that reason, God will be an object that metaphysics will study. Here we make a here the term object and object and subject are terms, ladies and gentlemen, that can be used in so many ways in English. When you're talking about a science in the tradition, I've, I've told you here what we mean by the subject, that whose causes and properties we seek. And so you define a science by giving its subject. And then there can be many different objects then. All object means is something studied by the science. So actuality and potentiality are objects in metaphysics. The angels are objects in metaphysics. In other words, they are something that metaphysics is going to study. God is the highest object of metaphysics. God is not called the subject matter. God is not the defining subject matter of metaphysics. That would try to make metaphysics do something that it can't do. Metaphysics comes to God and tries to reach out to him as the first cause of being in general, which is what metaphysics is, is focusing its attention on studying. All right. Give me a definition of wisdom. The habitual knowledge of reality through the highest causes. So wisdom in the proper sense refers to a habit of our intellect. In other words, it's, it's a groove. The wise man, is, his, his mind, his intellect is grooved in such a way that he is able to think well about the higher things. Just as the moral virtues are a groove in your appetite, and the temperate man has a groove in his appetite of, of desiring temperately. A habit is always a groove, a groove in a power. Wisdom is an intellectual virtue. It's a groove in then your intellect. It's a groove in the sense of a habit of coming to know the highest things and through them, everything else, I love what we were talking about. So we've already talked about that, so I move on. Naturally speaking, then the science of metaphysics would be, for Aristotle, for, for Plato, the science of metaphysics would be the height of knowledge. And so that's why, in a sense, St. Thomas, Aristotle, naturally speaking, setting aside for a moment divine revelation, supernatural faith, you could say the science of metaphysics would be the same as wisdom because it's the science that brings us systematically to insight into the highest things, so that through them we would have insight into other things. So Aristotle is a, naturally speaking, right? Aristotle is gonna be one of the wisest men that's walked the face of the earth. That wisdom is most of all going to consist in his having the habit of thinking metaphysically, indeed the habit more specifically of being able to do the science of metaphysics. All right. I'm going to go historical here for a moment and introduce a man uh, that you should know, Parmenides, P-A-R-M-E-N-I-D-E-S, -E Parmenides. Parmenides lived in the 5th century B.C., in the 5th century B.C. 
Parmenides is often called the father of metaphysics. This is going to be a little bit of a mind bender, ladies and gentlemen, but it's, it's worth your doing. Parmenides had an insight. Parmenides is famous for insisting upon a fundamental distinction, a distinction between what is and what is not. And he loved to simply repeat again and again, what is, is, and what is not, is not. And that is what you need to know. This is the fundamental insight into reality. Now, given this kind of insight, this metaphysical insight that what is, is, and what is not, is not, this led Parmenides to conclude two things. He concludes that being is unchanging and that being is one. So I'm, I'm going to, it's one of those moments, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to invite you to come along on this little, on this quick trip. This is where people can get a little frustrated. Well, do we agree with Parmenides or not? Right, right now, I'm just going to say, just press the pause button on that question and just think with them for a moment. He's having insight that what is, is, and what is not, is not. So he famously gives two arguments, which I'm going to give very, very, very briefly. Then we're going to move on. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to invite you to take with you here. An argument that because what is, is, and what is not, is not, then that means that there can be no such thing as change. It also means that there can only be one being. And I'm gonna put this reason to you as simply as I may in Parmenides' terms. Change, he says, were there to be such a thing, would have to come from somewhere and would have to go to somewhere. Changes in some sense are coming from and are going to. He's saying if what is is, and what is not is not, then there's nowhere for change to come from and nowhere for it to go to. Because what is already is. So change can't come from what is because what is already is. Change can't come from what is not because the one thing you need to remember about what is not is that it's not. And if it's not, nothing can come from there. Well, because it's not there. And also nothing can go there because there's no place to go to because it's not. So there's no such thing as change. There can't be change because all there is is being. And what is, is. What is not, is not. So there can be no change. And then his argument that there can be only one being. For there to be more than one being, there would have to be a difference between them. What would make the difference between two beings? What is is and what is not is not. Being can't make the difference from being because being is just being. What is is? You can't make a difference between being and being by non-being because what is is not. And so it can't make any difference because, again, it's not there. Now, if this sounds like he's playing a game, I present for your consideration, ladies and gentlemen, this is the furthest thing in the world from a game. He is thinking metaphysically. And I'm going to cut to the chase here. You know, where we're doing an intro to philosophy class, we'd spend a couple of days on Parmenides and look at some of the backgrounds and, 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 and try to bring this out and look at the logic therein. I, I love the culmination of that. I'm just going to cheat here. Students kind of running around in circles and, and saying, well, this is nutty. The guy's saying there's no change. 
Why doesn't he just open his eyes and look out the window? Why doesn't he look at his own self? Why doesn't he look at his children? Does he have parents? Does he have trees? What's the problem here? What do you mean there's no change? I mean, dogs change. They bark. That's a change. Are, are, are dogs being or not? I understand. That's all reasonable. Philosophy is a funny thing, ladies and gentlemen. Philosophy has to walk a tightrope. Philosophy has to walk a tightrope of being logically consistent and conceptually sound and also of fitting with experience. Parmenides made a choice because of the profundity, I would put it this way, my view of Parmenides, because of the profundity of his insight into being and to a certain logical consistency to his reasoning, he chose basically to say, I know it looks like things are changing, but I don't see how that can be the case. So that must just be an illusion. It must not be happening. Now, ladies and gentlemen, such a move is not at all uncommon in philosophy. Indeed, I'm not sure it's uncommon even in, 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 in normal life. But in any case, in Parmenides' defense, I would just throw this at you. In any case, his insistence is rooted in a rather astounding insight into being. If you are thinking about being in its most pure form, because I would present for your consideration that right metaphysics ultimately will bear Parmenides out on this. Being in the highest sense absolutely cannot change. And there's not more than one of it. Indeed, his argument that being must be one is functionally identical to St. Thomas Aquinas' argument that there's only one God. There can't be more than one God because there would be no way to differentiate them because God is pure being and you could not differentiate pure being from another pure being. This is an insight that Parmenides was having. And in any case, what I wanted you to see here is Parmenides gets metaphysical thinking going for us. He has a great insight into being but now we have this big problem of, well, okay, he kind of got metaphysical thinking going. And by the way, here's a very dramatic thing. Parmenides was a significant influence on guess whom? Plato. This was a fundamental background. Plato doesn't come from nowhere. No one ever comes from nowhere in their wisdom. Even if you do have someone who's rather unique and new, still as part of a tradition, there's a Parmenidean tradition in, in Plato's insisting on the difference between being and then the realm of becoming. And you make that divided line and the pure being is above that divided line. And that's what you're most interested in. What Plato was not willing to do, and we should be glad for this, is what Parmenides did and then say, well, then I guess everything in the, where it looks like there's change or becoming going on must simply be pure illusion. Plato didn't, wasn't willing to do that. So Plato has a bottom of the divided line. He has the material world around you. But guess what, ladies and gentlemen? inconvenient aspect of Platonic philosophy is Plato was not willing to call anything that changes a being. Plato was only willing to call something that's absolutely unchanging being. And that comes from Parmenides. And one of the most dramatic moments in the history of metaphysics comes when the great student of the great teacher, Aristotle to Plato, comes along and says, okay, it's good, Plato, that you've got that bottom of the divided line, but 
we, there have to be beings that change. And so one of the, the fundamental contributions of Aristotle to physics and to metaphysics, to philosophy, is Aristotle is able to give an account for change and to explain conceptually. He, he develops the metaphysical tools to be able to explain how you could have being that still can qualify as being and also change. Nobody before Aristotle, who was really in play, was able to say that. And it's one key notion that Aristotle introduces in one of the most startling terms in the history of philosophy that does that. I'm going to let you guess what that term is inside your heads. You ready? It begins with a P. Potentiality or potency. And the distinction between actuality and potentiality is the incredible contribution, ladies and gentlemen, of Aristotle, which comes precisely from his analysis of change and his absolute conviction, being the great philosopher that he is. He is able to do the astounding thing in great humility, while also being tuned into the tradition, learning from the tradition, but also having the courage when necessary to see that something had not been seen that he's going to have to step forward and do something about in the name of, of preserving the reality of what we see in the changing world around us. Frankly, it's key to Christianity too. Because while Plato has so much to recommend him metaphysically with his divided line, with his cave, which is with his understanding of the unchanging ways of being that he calls the forms, Plato doesn't know what to do with a tree or an aardvark that grows and that changes. He wasn't willing to call them beings. And ultimately, in a Christian world, in the world of this creating, creator, God, who is being, he is able to make contingent beings one of the most remarkable and important aspects of which is that they change. As gentlemen, in the history of philosophy, you always have to watch out for what is the view of change. There are some ancient philosophies. And there are some modern philosophies, the most fundamental notion of which is change. Hegel is one of them, ladies and gentlemen. Hegel's worldview, he is the key figure in what's called German idealism. He, his metaphysics, he still will use the term metaphysics. He has a metaphysics of change, not a metaphysics of being, which raises the issue of whether you can really call it a metaphysics anymore. We don't have time to go in that direction. But in the wise man, Aristotle, I recommend for your consideration, you have a profound metaphysics of being, which is able to understand what change is. And I say to you right now, ladies and gentlemen, momentarily, we're going to have to take a break. Here's one of the most important questions I'm going to ask you to, to consider and just think about why is there change anyway? There's a great metaphysical issue. With, with just, just, just think with me. Just bend your mind around it. Let it sink in for a moment and just, just, just meditate with me, if you will. Look at the natural world around you. There's trees, there's birds, there's mountains. There's, there's, the whole, there's the whole forests. There's that whole community of living things with that delicate balance of living and non-living. Can you hear the birds singing? And the, and, and the moon is rising and the sun is setting. Everything's going. Why is it going? 
Why are things changing? Changing is a going. Is it going somewhere? I mean, it's a great question. Where would change go? Where does change go? One of the most important other aspects, ladies and gentlemen, we have to do this and then, and then I'll let you take a break. One of the most important insights that Aristotle had into the world around us, ladies and gentlemen, was captured in his great notion of nature. And what's at the heart of his notion of nature? Everything that exists by nature is going. It has a dynamism. It's, it's inclining. So I love to say to my students, it's not just going anywhere as the, as the ancient atomist held. It's just atoms in the void. They're all bouncing off one another. Things are just going. Just kind of change, going. Don't, to say, ask where it's going, they'd say is to ask the wrong question. It's always what question you ask, ladies and gentlemen. Not all questions are good questions. I don't, asking a question of a teacher is always fine. But, but philosophically, not all questions are the right questions. One great question is, where are things going? Why are they going? Where are they going? Aristotle looked at the natural world. And one thing that was clear to him from his experience, he was very attentive to his experience, and he wasn't going to deny it. They're going somewhere. Where is that somewhere? Here's the other great word. They're going towards actuality. They're going towards being. Change is not for the sake of change. Change is for the sake of being. They're going somewhere. They're moving from potentiality to actuality, which is a stunningly powerful point. I'll say this, potentiality is all around us. There could be no change if there weren't potentiality. I'm still gonna define it, don't worry. Potentiality is always for the sake of actuality. Change is always for the sake of getting somewhere where in there need not be change anymore. It's a primacy of being. And from the viewpoint of the primacy of being, therein, one can understand change. You, already, you can already feel how, in certain ways, we hate change, don't we? This is very, very metaphysical. There's something in you that strongly resists it. This with good reason. But at the same time, certain change is necessary, and it needs to be understood for what it is, and, as it were, acted out. So, Andy, what do we do now? We take a break. So we had a question for those that are hanging around for during our, our breaks. There was a question that came in from Lisa Johnson. So Lisa, I know you're here. So uh, anyways, Lisa, Teresa, check this out. Uh, this was the question that Lisa asked. During last week's class, I kept thinking of Adam and Eve in the garden with the tree of knowledge. Can you speak to that? Would metaphysical thinking be part of their experience? I love that question because she brings in thinking and experience together. So, um, so just a couple of things on that. First of all, Lisa, the, the tree of knowledge in, in, in the garden is called the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which is a, called a Hebrew mirrorism, which is to take the two ends of a thing, like the final points, the beginning and the end, which means it contains all. So the, God is the alpha and the omega, right? So you have the tree of knowledge of good and evil, meaning they have spans of complete knowledge. So, but for everyone that's participating, I pulled out, uh, and, and here's where I, Teresa Cotter, I'm going to come to you, about St. Ephraim's Hymns on Paradise, which I hope you guys like. This is a wonderful book for a little meditation if you like praying in church and meditating. St. Ephraim's Hymns on Paradise. Uh, you can pick this up from, we're going to give you the link, link but St. Vladimir's Seminary Press. And this is a wonderful, wonderful book. Don't get worried about the, if you buy this, 
skip Sebastian Brock's introduction. Sorry, Dr. Brock, but uh, it's rather detailed unless you really love St. Ephraim. You know, that, that's like, come back to that later on. But in his Hymns on Paradise, this is what he says, because I love this question. You guys are thinking, what's Dr. Cutterback talking about? All this stuff. I just want to come to the Institute of Catholic Culture and learn about Jesus, okay? So, so listen to this. St. Ephraim's Hymns on Paradise. So he's about to give his commentary on Genesis, and this is how he begins. I, stook, I took my stand halfway between awe and love. A yearning for paradise invited me to explore it, but awe at its majesty restrained me from my search. With wisdom, however, I reconciled the two. I revered what lay hidden and meditated on what was revealed. The aim of my search was to gain profit. The aim of my silence was to find comfort. Joyfully did I embark on the tale of paradise, a tale that is short to read, but rich to explore. Thinking about those fairies in the trees, okay? My tongue read the story's outward narrative, while my intellect took wing and soared upward in awe. As it perceived the splendor of paradise, not as it really is, and here we're, I think we're thinking with Dr. Dr. Cutterback in the, in the sense of piercing to the way things really are, but insofar as humanity is granted to comprehend it. With the eye of my mind, I gazed upon paradise. The summit of every mountain is lower than its summit. The crest of the flood reached only its foothills. These it kissed with reverence before turning back to rise above and subdue the peaks of every hill and mountain. The foothills of paradise it kisses, while every summit it buffets. He goes on to describe what he sees in the story of the creation of the world, but not simply as the outward narrative gives it, but piercing through it to the way that things, the way that things are. And he and allows his imagination and wonder to be the guide. And so Teresa brought this up because he mentions, you asked last week in your scripture course about the cloud of glory. And he says this, praise to the just one who rules with his grace. He is the good one who never draws in the limits of his goodness. Even to the wicked, he stretches forth his compassion. His divine cloud hovers over all that is his. It drips dew, even on the fire of punishment, so that of his mercy, it enables even the embittered to taste the drops of its refreshment. I love that image of the cloud dripping the dew upon the fire because there he's referring to uh, not only those in, in punishment, but he's also making a reference to the three young men in the fiery furnace. And you can go back and read that it says that the fire of the, of the furnace was pushed out by the, the, the ruach, the spirit of God, the wind. It was a great wind in the Hebrew, the word ruach. The spirit of God came and pushed the fire out. And the dew came down upon their heads and cooled them in the midst of the fire. It's a beautiful image that's used by the fathers for baptism. So bringing together now baptism, the three young men in the fiery furnace, and the presence of God giving that gift of, of, of refreshing dew, even upon those who are suffering, in the terms of uh, the sacrament of holy confession. So this is a lot. I'm leaving a lot of open-ended for you because I'm going to recommend in this question that Lisa has about metaphysical thinking and the garden of paradise, I'm going to recommend St. Ephraim's hymns on paradise 
Because what Dr. Cutterback is giving you is a philosophical introduction, which is the foundation for uh, sound theology, which must also be the foundation for sound scripture study. Okay. Um, so there you go. Uh, Lisa, thank you for your question. Teresa, I hope that even though I'm not giving you any much more on the, on the cloud of glory, I hope kind of begins to open up your, uh, your prayer life and uh, your meditation upon this truth. Um, and uh, we're going to link this hymns on paradise and Ephraim. So God bless you guys. And uh, thank you all for being here in these two classes. We have one more hour to go now uh, with Dr. Cutterback. Looking forward to this final hour. Dr. Cutterback, come on, let's, let's get it on. All right. Potentiality, ladies and gentlemen, we need to talk a little bit about potentiality. Potentiality names a capacity for actual existence. Potentiality really is understood as the correlative term to actuality. It's a very fundamental notion. It seems so simple. You can think, how was this not seen before? Well, I don't have any particular insight for you on that at the moment. In a word, we might say this, though. What was Parmenides not seeing? Well, I mean, Parmenides kept focusing on, I mean, this, this is the way I like to put it. He, he, was, he had an insight into the way kind of being itself is. And, and being itself is, is simply being. There is no change. There is no differentiation within it. When God creates anything, there will necessarily be potentiality in anything that he creates. He cannot create something that is pure actuality. Pure actuality as such is he. It is necessarily uncreated. You can't, now, you might say, well, can we talk about that more? No. The answer is no, um, because if then, then we could spend the rest of the time talking about that. And so certain things I'm just going to kind of say in passing and, and ask you to, to, to give me a buy on that for the sake of 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 helping paint a picture, but 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 trying at least a little bit to stay on a, a, a certain progression here. I I invite you to think of a seed, ladies and gentlemen. How about an acorn? Acorn is an amazing uh, being. Oh, I, I, I sorry, I didn't finish what I was saying. Parmenides focusing on what is is, what is not is not, and in a word, the subtext of that is never the twain shall meet, and there isn't anything else. It's either being or non-being. Potentiality, in a sense, properly understood, is something that's kind of in the middle. Potentiality is not actual being, but it's not non-being. Though in general, when we are talking about potentiality, there is some non-being involved. Let me put it to you this way. Consider the acorn. Acorn, of course, is nothing but a beautiful seed, right? It has the potential to sprout. It doesn't have the actuality of being sprouted. It doesn't have the actuality of being a, a, a tree. To be precise, an acorn is not a tree. An acorn is a seed, and a seed is not a tree. But it has the potential to sprout. Right. The, so when you there refer to the potentiality, you are the, there is an absence. There is, as it were, a non-being of sproutedness here. In general, we don't speak of there being a potential to sprout unless, if if it already has sprouted. 
Right? So in general, when referring to potentiality, there is a non-being involved of something that nonetheless there is a can be for. There is a real potentiality for. But another thing to note about potentiality that's very important is this. Potentiality never exists on its own. There's no such thing as pure potentiality. When I say no such thing, there's, in other words, there's, it, it doesn't exist. Now, if you've, one of the hardest concepts in St. Thomas's philosophy in Aristotle's is that of something that's called prime matter, which they are going to speak of in terms of being a kind of pure potentiality, but prime matter doesn't exist on its own. You can only refer to it as being a principle in actually existing things. We're not, we're not going to go there for the moment. What, what, what I'm trying to say here about potentiality was I'm referring to it as a capacity. There is a not yetness involved, and that way potentiality is not the same thing as actuality. And nonetheless, that potentiality must, it presupposes actuality. So I'd like to put it to you this way. This, this is what's key about Aristotle's insight into potentiality. It's key to explaining change. Where does change come from? Change has to begin with something that has potentiality. If there's no potentiality for something that's not there, then no change is going to happen. If the change happens, then clearly there was a potentiality for whatever it is that is now so, right? So there had to be potentiality, but there can only be potentiality, again, in something that is actual. And given what that actuality is, given, given the actuality of a being, it has various potentialities or potencies, use those terms interchangeably. Potentiality is always, in a sense, sandwiched between actualities. And I'll put it to you in the sense of there can't be potentiality except in something that has actuality, that is actually. And then the sandwich on the other side, what I'm referring to is potentiality is always pointing towards actuality and, as it were, finds its meaning in its very actualization. This is a key aspect of, of again, Aristotle, the first great philosopher to, to take so seriously and to do so well in giving account for the natural world around us. Great weakness in Plato because of not, in part, in the case of not having solved the Parmenidean problem, Plato doesn't really know what to do with the changing world around us. Aristotle, again, so I providentially fits so well with Christianity and a creator that invests so much meaning in little things, small things, such as sheep and bread and trees and, and seeds. You, you, you have in Aristotle this insight into the natures of things. And to understand the natures of things, key is to understand the potential that all natural things have to become something more actually. And the astounding thing about these natural things is that you need to understand the actuality that is the fulfillment of their potentiality if you're really going to understand them. In other words, do you really understand an apple tree if you don't know what apples are? If you don't know what a flourishing, as it were, fully actualized apple tree is, you don't really know apple trees. The end, I'm, very, I'm going to do a quick sidebar here on the end or final cause, which is a great metaphysical notion. And we're, we're going to continue with potentiality, but I'm just going to pause for a moment here. Having introduced potentiality, it's a great 
point to just advert to the final cause or the end. Aristotle says, you know most fully any natural thing when you know its end. The end of, a natural, of any natural thing is that full state of actuality, that complete actuality that is the fulfillment of its natural potentialities. Think of the tree. I always in my classroom use the example of the fully flourishing white oak tree that, that, that is throwing forth with, with uh, abundance, prodigious abundance, acorns. It, 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 herein, herein is treeness at its height. Herein the potentialities of the nature of tree have come to their fulfillment and therein you really see what it means to be a tree. Imagine, ladies and gentlemen, what this means then when you come to human nature, which then, shall we do a quick sidebar on that? Okay, we've introduced here the, the very important notion of things exist by nature. What does Aristotle note about them? And of course, the great thing is, Aristotle will take his notion of nature there and apply it to everything created, has a nature that is inclining towards the fulfillment that has potentiality for achieving certain actualities that are not there yet. Those actualities are going to be, those potentialities are going to be actualized in doing certain things, in certain activities. Quick sidebar, I don't want to load things on too much. In, in, in God, in just his fundamental being, there is all the fullness of actuality. There's no distinction between his very being and any actions that he does. It is, it, it is all one. But in everything other than him, you, you have a substance where then there'll be certain activities in the doing of which will be the fulfillment of our potentialities. In, in, any created thing has to do certain things if it is to become itself. It has the potential to act in various ways. Quick question for you. Ladies and gentlemen, what do you think is the main potentiality written into human nature? Just think about that for a moment. What do you think is the main potentiality, the main potency you have as a human being in the actualization of which will be the fulfillment of what you are? What kind of what kind of action do you think it's going to be? Anyone want to raise your hand and throw a throw in, in, in any of you here in the in the front? Am I, is that okay, Andy? Yeah, of course. All right, good, good, good. Anyone 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 have a thought thought there? Um, is that Ray? Hi, Ray. To become godlike, not to become God ourselves, but to be taken up into the nature of God. Well, that, that, that's grand. I love it. But but stay with me a moment. Give me. A, I, I like it very much. Give me an activity because then that begs then to consider, well, I mean, I do need to do something, don't I, Ray? In other words, th there will need to be a doing. There'll need, there'll need to be an activity, some, some kind of activity for which in me there's a potentiality. Any thought on what kind of activity that might be? I, I, I understand there's a number of different things. The sacraments. I mean, I can't, I can't not be a Catholic sitting here and not answer that, not answer it that way. I mean, I, I, I think I'm okay. about it a little bit, but that, that's what first comes to my mind 
is the sacraments. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. How about this? And I mean, I'll send on the Father's correction here. Um, I mean, even the sacraments then are going to give us the grace then to be able to do certain things. Dr. Right. Cutterback, we've got a couple of people writing in the chat box, and then, uh, Dino, you can respond too. Uh, Some people uh, are saying uh, yeah. love, suggesting love. Okay. Some are suggesting dying, actually. Uh, another one is suggesting praising God. Okay. All and, right. Dino, you had a suggestion. Dean, what do you got? Too. You got to mute yourself there. I, they're all kind of right. Uh, it's, uh, I guess, to reproduce, because then in, in reproducing, we cause ourselves to have kids and we love them and we raise them up and am I somewhere in there? I don't know. Reproduction. Reproduction. Yeah. Is a great thing. Very great. Very noble. And then you went on to say how that includes certain of those other things. So I'm I'm fully going to sign off on that. Okay. But well, not fully. Just for, (laughs) if you don't mind, I'm going to push a little bit and just say this. Sorry. I'm one of those teachers. I know reproduction i mean at the end of the day is the fulfillment of human nature in reproduction dean you're not going to say that because if reproduction is going to stop but the perfection of human nature is not going to stop there's certain kinds of activities that we have a potentiality for they're even more noble all right i like those things and again ray what you said i mean dean thank you you're you're doing great there but i mean i'm just going to throw this out wisdom Knowledge, vision, contemplation. Right, so I'm just going to, I'm going to cut to the chase on this one. And again, there's a richness here. When St. Thomas Aquinas asks, if you were to say in what kind of activity most essentially does the perfection of human nature consist, he's going to use the C word contemplation, as does Aristotle. But of course, in a Christian context, that means something that it couldn't mean for Aristotle. And one truth that we have to recognize is that's not going to leave love out in the cold. Contemplation is going to be a loving knowing. But in, but, but in any case, can, can we just, let's, let's just, let's stay with this for a moment here, Les and John. You have a potential, keep it natural for a moment. And, and again, Ray, I'm all about the, the sacrament. I mean, the sacraments are going to give us the grace, which is a principle of doing grace to activities. And, and activities in charity. And, and the perfection of charity is going to have different forms. And so we're no, no way trying to reduce it simply to contemplation, although even in this life that is held by the church to be the, the most perfect expression of charity is even in a supernatural contemplation. And of course, and then the fulfillments in heaven is the beatific vision, which is a seeing of God as he sees himself. Now, it's a fascinating question that even transcends any natural potentialities that we had. And that's too difficult a question that for us to go to in any specifics. But let's just let's just keep it basic here. But nonetheless, very deep. Naturally speaking, everybody here has the potentiality for metaphysical thinking. It's a great blessing to have that potentiality. I love potentiality. I'm not trying to be cutesy when I say, but I love the actuality more. When one comes to the actual fulfillment of that potentiality, one finds, as it were, 
obviously, what the potentiality was all about. Quick note, ladies and gentlemen, on the metaphysics of knowing. And this is a very important part of metaphysics before we go on. St. Thomas at one point says this, ready? You're going to like this point. Hang with me. In the great chain of being, when God creates something, he can only give it this nature. Any nature is limited. Its essence is limited. Essence is a kind of limiting principle. We're going to talk about in a moment the distinction between essence and existence. And your essence limits the act of existence to being you just exist in the human way. You and I exist in the human way. We don't have unbound existence or unbound being. We have a limited, defined being. We are not being itself. We are, we are human beings. We have being in this limited way. God, if he is going to create anything, must give it some limited being, which has some essence, and every essence other than his essence, which is his existence, is some limited way of having existence. All right, but if he wants it especially to be able to grow, all things exist by nature can become, as it were, more, right? Picture, isn't it astounding? It, 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 look, look at the, all the living things. They start out incomplete and they need to grow to their perfection. The higher up you go in general, in the, interestingly, the, uh, God made it so that it actually takes longer to do so. Interesting in his wisdom, human beings, right? You have, you have an adult pig, you know, pigs, pigs go from the size of a baby to being over 200 pounds in six months. Human beings, God is designed to have to have to take so long to come to their fullness and think of all the other potentialities it takes so long to fulfill. What is the main kind of potentiality of all that beautiful panoply, especially in knowing? What's the main way that we grow in our own being by intellectual activity? St. Thomas, let me complete the point I said earlier, when he says that God has to give you just a limited nature. God can't make you be an angel. You are a human being. But he can make your being, though it is as limited to just as it is to being the human way of being, he can make your being be an intellectual kind of being. And by being intellectual, you are able, he says, in a sense, to be everything. Because you can know everything, and knowing itself is a kind of being. I'm going to be bold here. I'm going to write something in Latin. This is one of the great phrases that was used of the human soul. Capable of the whole. Capable of the universe as it were, but universe is almost not a good translation, capable of the whole. The human soul, because it's intellectual, this is from Aristotle, he famously says, the human soul, in a sense, can be all things. It has the potential to be all things by coming to know them. I'm not going to linger on that, though it's well worth lingering on. It's a very metaphysical point. One quotation from, from my fa- one of my couple favorite fathers of the church, St. Gregory the Great, 
the doctor of desire, who talks so much about the beatific vision. What does he not see? Who sees him? Who sees all things? When you see all that there is to see, therein you are what you were made to be, because you were doing what you were made to do. There's a metaphysical aspect here. Knowledge is something real. I love telling my students when you when you learn something, especially something deep, it, it becomes a part of you. This isn't a figure of speech. It's a reality. The metaphysics of knowing. When you know what what's the main way that that friends are united to one another, they know one another and they love. Knowledge and love here are deeply interwoven, and let's just take them as as two sides of the same coin. The knowledge and love, those are potentialities that I have. I was going to say this, Father, uh, I'm throwing this, throwing this one out towards you. The higher being always seeks stability. Being, being seeks the kind of the unchanging. Remember, change is for the sake of coming to where there's the completion so that change really need not be anymore. Very neat points, part of that metaphysics of being. Aristotle, St. Thomas draws this out. When you think of the different activities that you can do, contemplation is a very unique activity. It says contemplation at a height is not a going anywhere. It's just a being in something. When you contemplate, he says, in the very middle of contemplation, in the very midst of contemplation, you're not even changing anymore. You're just being something more in the seeing. Is that too far out? With the higher kinds of activities are are very stable. Father, I was going to say, I said I was throwing it out, going throwing out something towards you. Being seeks stability. One of the beautiful ways that we are able to become more fully ourselves in being more stably, as it were, fully actualized, is precisely by developing those grooves in our souls. The more wise, the more virtuous a human person becomes, the more stable he is, the more unchanging. The change is is kind of for the sake of going to, of growing into the virtue, of growing in knowledge. Uh, The more we are in the virtue and in the knowledge, now we are there. Can't pass up this sidebar, one of my favorite topics of friendship. Friends wanna be together. At the height of friendship, One of the reasons that St. Thomas says that friendship is able to be the most that it can be among the virtuous is because the virtuous have such deep grooves in their souls. They are in a very stable kind of way. And the best of friends know that tomorrow their friend isn't going to leave the reservation because of that great stability of who they have become. God gives us this great gift. We can fulfill our potentialities in such a way with these repeated actions. We form those grooves, and now we are in a very stable way. We are in a more godlike way. Potentiality is extremely beautiful, seen in view of the actuality that is its fullest actualization. All right, we were talking about potentiality. Quick time check. All right, we got to do we got to do some transcendentals here. So it's about capable of the whole, human soul can become all things, primacy of actuality, we've talked about the primacy of actuality, just a real quick sidebar of 30 seconds on this, 
of how metaphysical thinking is going to help you in any in any part of philosophy. Remember, metaphysics is not all philosophy. Moral philosophy is another obviously extremely important area. When St. Thomas does moral philosophy, he uses it's very metaphysical. A human action is good when he, he literally says, when it has all the being that it should have. Perfection for St. Thomas is always in the fullness of actuality that should be there. I'm going to say that again. Perfection, and the term perfection is an extremely important one used in many different contexts. Perfection is in the fullness of the actuality that should be there. So good human actions, moral goodness, is when, is when the being that should be in our action is there. What being needs to be there? Proper order to the end. I, I know I, I don't I don't expect that, and so I'm going to leave that and go on. I just wanted to see how even in doing moral philosophy, there's a very metaphysical approach where the notion of potentiality and actuality is very much in, in play. I wanted to do the real distinction right now between essence and existence. So this is what we're going to do, ladies and gentlemen, and this might be the essence of folly, which is the opposite of wisdom. I'm going to try to do the real distinction in about two minutes, and then we're going to do the transcendentals in the 10 minutes after that, and then we'll take questions. The real distinction is very closely connected to actuality and potentiality. What is called metaphysics, the real distinction, which is central for St. Thomas, is the distinction between essence and existence. Essence names a way of being. Now, this is one of those things where if you're getting a little bit tired, I apologize. This is going to sound like just a bunch of verbiage. Like, what in the heck is he talking about? Well, essence is a way of being, the, the tr tree essence, human essence. You can also refer to essence as being a potentiality for existence. The human way of being is a potential for existing. So essence is a way of being, the human way of being, the tree way of being. Existence is the act of existing, the act of being. Consider a human person. The essence refers to the whatness, what answers to the question what. What am I? I am human. I have the human way of being. But that is distinct from referring to the actual existence that I have. You can conceptualize. Here's how the real distinction is made, and this is going to be too brief. You can conceptualize the human way of being in abstraction from any particular existence. The human being is what it is. Frankly, whether there are any human beings actually existing or not, we could go this way. God can conceptualize the human way of being. An angel could conceptualize have a concept of the human way of being, even if there are no actually existing human beings. The actual existence of a human being is distinct from that way of being. Now, that, we need to do that more to, in a satisfactory way, talk about the real distinction between essence and existence. But that, in any case, is a little peek at how we do the real distinction. At the height of metaphysics, you get to the point where there is one being, only one, in which there is no distinction between what it is, that's always essence, and the act of existence. The very what of God is 
to exist. You cannot even conceive of the God way of being except as existing. Any other way of being, you could conceive of it and have and define it and understand sufficiently what it is in abstraction from any question of whether there actually are those individual existing ones or not. God might never have created any human beings. What it means to be human would have been the same. You could conceptualize the human way of being whether there's any human beings. You cannot even conceptualize the God way of being without existence. The God way of being is existence. In everything else, there's a real distinction between essence and existence. In God, his essence is his existence. There is no distinction. I now go to the transcendentals, ladies and gentlemen. Transcendentals as a whole. Certain terms, certain terms can be predicated of. Predicate is just a uh, fancy way of saying said of. In other words, make a proposition. X is Y. You are predicating Y of X. X is Y. Y is the predicate here. It's being predicated of. It just means said. I say Socrates is a man. You're predicating man of Socrates. Certain terms can be predicated of everything that exists. These are the transcendentals. We call them general modes of being. They are distinct from the categories, ladies and gentlemen. Categories are 10 modes of being, but they cannot, they are referring to, as it were, 10 ways of being, the substance way of being, the quality way of being, the quantity way of being. You can't predicate quality or quantity or the categories of everything that exists. You divide reality into the 10 categories. Transcendentals are different from categories. Transcendentals are terms that can be predicated of absolutely anything that you can predicate being of. If you can say it exists or is a being, then you can predicate these two of them. Let's talk about two of the most important, true and good. You often hear it referred to, you hear them called transcendentals. Let me give you a definition of truth. The conformity of thing and intellect. The conformity of thing and intellect. When you refer then to being as true, you are referring to a conformity it has to some intellect. Now, no, and I know it's painful to do this this quickly, but I'm going to do it anyway. We first of all predicate true of knowledge. The main thing that you normally call true is knowledge, like a proposition. You don't normally say, hey, that's a true tree. You can say that, but more to the point is you'll say, some proposition that I have, that I form, is true. True always will fit the definition that I just gave you, some conformity of thing and intellect. I'll call my proposition true if there is a conformity, a oneness of form, a sameness between my proposition and the way things are out there. If I say the tree is white and the tree is white, there is a conformity between my proposition and the reality, so you say that my proposition is true. But ladies and gentlemen, when you wanna use true as a, as a transcendental, that's a little bit 
different than referring to truth of knowledge, which is the way we most often use the term true. If you want to use true as a transcendental, then you're saying any being can be called true. A tree is true. The aardvark is true. The man is true. What is going on there? That is referring to now the conformity kind of looking the other direction. It's saying that being is conformed to some intellect, which can have knowledge of it. Now, the interesting thing here, ladies and gentlemen, is when you refer to it this way, it naturally makes you think, well, then must that intellect not be a divine intellect? I'm just going to say on the side, you can refer to true as a transcendental just from the fact that all things are knowable, that they're conformable to an intellect, even a created intellect. But at root, the deepest root of saying true is a transcendental, that everything can be called true, is the conformity that all things have to the divine intellect. So, last point about true. When you say that all things exist are true, a, a simple way to think in terms of that, a very reasonable way to think in terms of that is this conforms to God's understanding of it. And in that, it is true. True is always in conformity between intellect, some intellect. You couldn't speak of truth where they're not an intellect. Beings are true because they are conformed to the intellect ultimately the divine intellect. Very beautiful point that that means then when we conform our minds by discovering what's out there, and again, I go back to our opening mo moment when we were for our time together, is, man's, is man the measure of things or is first of all reality a measure of us? Reality in some sense already is true. We conform our minds to it when you succeed in conforming your minds to reality, in receiving it, in discovering it, then we can say your mind, your knowledge is true. It is conformed to what's out there. And from an ultimate perspective, your mind is therefore also being conformed to the mind of God to which that reality is conformed. Now I'm going to say something about good. This says good, true is a transcendental that points to the relatedness of all being to intellect. Good is the transcendental that points to the relatedness of all being to appetite. Appetite being used in, in the rich sense. Remember, will is an appetite. So the definition of good in the traditional sense we have to watch our terms here, particularly given how they're used today. I'm going to be wrapping up in one minute. What is desirable? Good refers to being as desirable to appetite, as, as worthy of appetites inclining towards it. All being is good, is pointing to how all being is worthy of, in some sense, the appetite of a human person or an angel. Again, were there, were there nothing rational, we wouldn't speak of any of these transcendentals. 
were there nothing rational, there would be no being. When, when you refer to the transcendentals, truth has to do with their relationship to an intellect. They are in conformity with intellect. They are conformable to an intellect. They conform your intellect. The goodness, they are worthy of desire. It is ours to discover just how worthy of being affirmed by our appetite they really are. My final very quick reflection for you on that is, when you talk about the transcendentals here, we really are at the height of things, ladies and gentlemen. It's not expected, but it's like, oh yeah, great, of course, obviously everything's true and good. But how does one even have that insight? This is a very fundamental intuition that, that, that brings you right to the root of things. I love pausing for moments. The last thing that, that oh, I didn't say anything about theology. Well, we'll have, maybe we'll be able to do that in the question and answer. How, how do we know that things are good? Or why? Why are they good? What does it even mean to say that is worthy of my will saying yes? What it really means is good means worthy of love, because love is an act of the appetite. Worthy of love. In metaphysics, when we come to the insight that all being is good, this is, this is taking us right to something that is so profound. Everything that is, is always lovable. Well, I got to stop there and take questions. Andy, what do we got? Look at that. All right. We're going to warm up with what is being categorized as some quicker questions. Okay. All right. We'll go into some deeper waters. So um, Marie is wondering, would uh, potentiality and actuality have a parallel in time and eternity? Perhaps not a direct parallel, but definite parallel there. And I, and I will keep this very short. Time is defined as Aristotle as the measure of change. Change is rooted in potentiality. The act of a thing in the definition of change is the act of a thing in potentiality in as much as it is in potentiality. And so it, it, there's a definite parallel there. Time is very much interwoven with things being in potential, moving towards their actuality. And then in, in eternity, things are not changing anymore. Potentiality has been fulfilled in this actuality. So I like the parallel. Mm. Let's actually continue with this theme of potentiality. Scott uh, wrote this question in, and I had to restrain myself from presenting it uh, during class because I think he's going to jump up and down if you say yes. Um, he says, regarding this sandwich that you were talking about, potentiality mm -hmm. and actuality, does uh, potentiality originate from actuality and return in its fullness to actuality through becoming what actuality intended potentiality to be? Affirmative. Yes, Scott, you nailed it. That was, that was good. I should shut up, but just, yeah, wait, <laughs> but, but I won't. Sorry, just real fast. There could well have been no potentiality ever. It, it's very important to, un to understand reality as it is. It's very important to understand that God did not need to create. And thus there could have, he, he, would, he, would, he really was fine. <laughs> I mean, we, we have to, that's part of our faith. God was fine. He, it, it would be outrageous heresy 
to say that God somehow is lonely and created human beings to somehow overcome that. God wasn't lonely. It was, it was from pure fullness and pure generosity that he wanted to share. And so there, from, from pure actuality, then if he's going to share, he's going to have to then create things wherein there's potentiality. So there's, there's the ultimate potentiality comes from actuality, but even more than on, on the concrete. There's no such thing as potential. What potentialities I have are determined by the actuality that I have as a human. I turn it over to you. Let me knock out these three quickies and then Ray, you can do one. And then we got a couple of guys here too. All right. Amy is asking, um, could you provide a working definition uh, and or distinction? Let's say distinction between metaphysical and supernatural. And uh, I, there was other people writing similar things to this. Uh, so if you could distinguish those two, I think they're kind of. All right, this, all right, this is this is this is very this is very very important. Metaphysical per se is not supernatural. Super supernatural. Remember what we call metaphysics here is really just you know the science of the higher things, which ultimately ends up being most of all what the ancients and Saint Thomas will call the separate substances that are immaterial, that are spiritual. But, but what we need to understand as Christians is that supernatural refers to divine revelation where God decided, God in his freedom decided to share a whole new avenue of insight into things that is beyond the light of natural reason. Metaphysics is possible by the light of natural reason. And so supernatural, simply refers, with great richness, refers to the whole realm of what happens by, by faith, by divine revelation, and then the whole life of faith and grace. Grace is, by definition, supernatural. That is, it's beyond the whole level of the light of natural reason and the various powers that go along with it. So it's, it's important to recognize that there's nothing supernatural about what Aristotle did. Aristotle was the height of using natural reason, which can speak about God. So it's not a good use of terms to say God is supernatural. That's not a good, that's not a God, that's not a good use of terms right there. Supernatural is referring to God's way of sharing himself with us in a way that was above and, above and beyond the natural way of sharing himself with us. Have I answered that clearly enough? Mm, yeah, that's a really cool point to make. I, I think also that there's another question that's in here that I thought was unrelated, but the way you answer that makes me realize this might be the key in terms of why people are, are confusing the two things. So uh, we were talking about metaphysics as being the knowledge of the, the final causes, right? First causes. First causes. Thank you. And, and God is the, the, the first cause or the final cause. And in metaphysics, are you seeing reality from the perspective of that first cause? Like you're using that as a, a form of measurement or like a lens? Letitia is writing and saying, well, how can we attain God's measurement and use that I mean, we can't be him, but we're supposed to see things from okay. him. Okay. This is always a danger of, I'm just going to put Father Hezekiah's lap. Look, 
he had, he asked a philosopher to do this. And to be precise, the, 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 the title is about metaphysics. I am trying to unfold metaphysics as a natural science in our tradition, metaphysics names, a science that is available to natural reason. By my sharing that here with you, I am not in any way encouraging you as Christians to think, well, all I need to do is go out there and do metaphysics. In fact, remember, what I have encouraged you to do is metaphysical thinking, which is broader than the science of metaphysics. Now, when I say metaphysical thinking, particularly then if you take that in a broad sense, that immediately opens itself up into supernatural thinking, to faith-filled thinking, and the whole realm of acting in faith, and a kind of wisdom that is available only through supernatural grace. I need to pause and say this. This is astoundingly important, ladies and gentlemen, as Christians, because it's ultimately always all about Jesus and our faith. The highest wisdom that there is, according to St. Thomas Aquinas, who is always a theologian, and he only does philosophy in order to do theology better, in order to understand God's revealed word better. That's his reason for being interested in philosophy. The highest kind of, of wisdom is the wisdom that is the gift of the Holy Spirit, which he unbelievably, powerfully says, everybody here needs to know this. God's always still got in certain ways of hierarchy, but, 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 but fathom this. St. Thomas says, to the poorest peasants, to the most un uneducated peasants, there is now available through the revealed truths, through the grace of the gift of the Holy Spirit of wisdom. There is now a wisdom in the full and proper sense of the term available to every Christian that is far beyond the greatest wisdom of metaphysics far beyond the height of the science of metaphysics is the supernatural wisdom that comes of a life in Christ, in the Holy Spirit, where you are, we are moved by the Holy Spirit himself and given insights into God by the breath of God being breathed upon us. This is absolutely critical. That ultimately is, is what metaphysical thinking is all about. I must read you, the, this sheet of quotations will be sent you by Andy as a follow-up. Listen to this. When John Paul II, always sorting these things out, this is from Peter Zerapture, like the first list of quotations. The results of reasoning, and he's talking about natural reasoning, may in fact be true, but these results acquire their true meaning only if they're set within the larger horizon of faith. Real metaphysics demands and calls out for supernatural faith. Ladies and gentlemen, honestly, from my heart, what I most of all say to you as a brother Christian is I, I encourage you most of all to pursue wisdom through the sacraments, through the Eucharist, through scriptures, through the word of God, entering in through your relationship with our Lord, through the interior life, this is plugging into the first cause, and this gives us the angle from which to see all other things. But in the beautiful panoply here, that doesn't make metaphysics be unimportant. And there's some other qu quotations herein where are saying in many ways, our world has lost its way both on the natural level and on the supernatural level, and th they tend to go together. And when things are going well, they tend to go together. When things are going badly, the demise of both goes together. Andy, what's next? All right, Pat Smith. 
is writing and, and says like, okay, many words that he commonly hears have been used and explained tonight. Transcendentals, truth, goodness, beauty, actuality and potentiality. But there is one that's still lingering in his mind and he's wondering how that links up to these other ones. That is form. How does form relate to uh, what we've been discussing? That's a great, great question. And form relates to matter as actuality to potentiality. I, my great, great professor, uh, one of the books I used in, uh, to prepare is, is a, uh, Lawrence Dewan, D-E-W-A-N, one of the greatest metaphysicians of the 20th century, God rest his soul. Um, he, he particularly loved to say St. Thomas's is a metaphysics of form. And form is a principle that we first discover in physics. This is part of the reason the physics has to be studied first. You study, we just see the distinction in the natural world between form and matter. And form is a principle of actuality. And matter is a principle of potentiality. And then as you move up through our investigation of reality, lo and behold, we come to find that there can be form without matter. That there can never be matter without form, because that would be just, as you can't have potentiality without actuality. The angels, says St. Thomas, are pure forms. They are pure forms. Their essence is a form. Human essence is a composite of form and matter. The, the essences of all material things are a composite of form and matter. The essences of higher immaterial beings are pure form. Form is always a principle of actuality. That's what I'm going to say for now. And form is well worth uh, looking at much more. But it, and it, it was explicitly rejected by modern philosophy. And in uh, Descartes said, let's just leave aside the formal cause and just talk about the material cause. That's what you tend to have, for instance, in much of the science of biology. Just looking at material processes, material processes, what is the form? A soul is a kind of form. There's very rich forms. There's a great hierarchy of forms in reality. There's the form of a rock and there's a form of a tree. The form of a tree is called a soul. All right, there's a real quickie on form. What else we got? Ray, why don't you pull the trigger? Okay, I just want to read from my notes. So I'm, I'm, I got to look down to do that. I, I, right. I think I understood that, or what I wrote down, I don't know that I understand it actually. So potentiality to actuality and it, things are always going to somewhere to a state of no more change, and that think being is always seeking stability. So your acorn turns into a tree, I look out the window, and over 30, 40, 50 years, the tree decays. What, what, what's that? Like, you know, the tree decays. Great. Our okay. bodies decay. Things decay in nature. You can ask me a question about a tree any day, right? All right. Now, they'll always have a great answer. Here's the thing, the moving towards stability. I did not mean to imply, and I might have implied, and, and I correct it now. Lower things in particular will never reach a state of unchangingness. Indeed, nothing will reach a state of pure unchangingness. There will, there will still be change in some sense in heaven, in as much as, Ray, I pray that you and I will be there, and um, we're going to pray really hard that Andy's going to be there. And then, for instance, I might 
speak to you and then turn and speak to Andy. And that would necessarily be a change, right? So, so nothing other than God is going to be, is going to be simply unchanging. Nonetheless, the fundamental potentialities have been fulfilled and there is a profound stability. So I don't want to make it sound as though we get beyond um, any change. All right. Now, so in varying degrees, decay, decay is, a, is, is, is a fascinating thing. In the lower species, in, in, in anything that, that's non-rational, Aristotle will point out that what particularly was in play, and this, this shows how the lower are always serving the higher in this great hierarchy. I mean, really, when you think about it, the lower things are, 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 are to take care of us. They, they aren't so much about being permanent fixtures. They, are, they, have, they have a nobility, but they're serving us. They're serving us by literally giving us f- food and heat and so forth, but also feeding us intellectually, right? And, but the main way that trees do this is there is the, the solidity of the preservation of the species, right? And so the, the, they, you know, in, individuals come and go. You never say that about, about, about human beings because it's a different situation, they're much higher nobility. But the, the individuals come and go, and so at least you have the stability of the species, and that achieves certain great ends. But, but that said, still, I say very quickly, in the life of, life of a tree, I mean, cha- change is more something of youth, isn't it? In a tree as in human beings. I mean, we always should be growing, but also hopefully as, as we're getting older, again, there's always going to be still more room to grow, but hopefully the changes aren't going to be in a sense quite as dramatic, right? We, we have matured. It is of youth. The small trees are, are growing as ice. They reach a maturity. When in, in, in any case, the mature tree doesn't grow anymore. And it's putting on rings, r- growth rings, but it's not going up in height at all. It's kind of, it has a certain, it ha- has a certain stability. Now in, in God's great providence, right, they, they, they go. Right, and now now they're going to die and decay. The end, the goal of a tree is not to die, though its dying is part of the great teleology, where it's going to serve other trees even in its death. Great, great conversation. Can't can't have it now. I love saying I love saying to students, "What's the end of a tree in the sense of final cause? Is it death? A tree wasn't born to die. A tree was born to flourish. So flourishes, and then it dies. Ray, you want a ten second follow up? You good? All right, Andy, what do we got? All right, Elizabeth wants to take it to the streets. It's nice to have this conversation, uh, take this lesson, this class to the streets, i.e., okay, we can talk about this kind of stuff here because we're in this context of other people that are showing up want to know about metaphysics. But how do we begin this conversation with somebody who's not in that context? But it's not really that question, it's this. How do you suggest to dialogue with the current mindset? But behind that is this. What is the philosophy of phenomenology? She hears that a lot. And does that interlink with the problem of today's loss of metaphysical thinking? Now that I've said this out loud, I apologize. The question that's, is that's right. I got, I got it, Andy. We're good. I mean, yeah. I know what I'm going to do and what, I, what I'm not going to do. Not going to talk about phenomenology. Not, not, not at 9, 12 p.m. So... That was not meant to be a side-handed swipe. The term means a number of different things. It's used for, for, for everybody from complete idealists who have lost complete touch with metaphysics to St. Edith Stein, who has not lost touch with metaphysics. And so it's too nuanced and it's too, and it's, it's too difficult. But I'm willing to say something, uh, not, not a good question, it needs to be dealt with. Take it to the streets. We need to get used to. There's many things that we do to form ourselves. 
that might not be taken to the streets in the very form by which we are are integrating it into ourselves. Honestly, I'd, I'd put it to this way. Become a better knower, become more wise, have a viewpoint of metaphysical thinking, bear in mind these principles and have them affect how you act, how you think, how you speak, and seek in little ways to convey these things to people. The, the, the point that potentiality is for the sake of actuality is an incredibly beautiful insight. There's so many ways, I, I, a restoration that we can we encourage metaphysics, a restoration of physics in the sense of a restoration of the appreciation of the natural world and its proper relation to us and what we can or cannot learn from it is a good preparation. So I love to... I, I love to say to parents, you don't have to have them try to start metaphysics in high school. Have, have, have them study the natural world. Have them do a good old natural history kind of course. Have, have them steward and live in those things. People that, that, that are more in the natural world are not so tempted to think that man is the measure of things. I'm not saying it's a, it's a, a panacea or a cure-all there. I, I mean, that's a very simple way for me to put it. That how, how are you going to take it to the world? Assimilate it become more capable of doing these, this kind of thinking yourself, pattern it for others, depending on where they are. To some people, you can speak more explicitly. To others, you can't. I think actually that's a good place to stop for All tonight. Right. I think I could end with uh, Ashton. She wrote in and just said, though she knows right off the bat, she's going to need to rewatch this about 100 times. She does say, uh, thank you for the two presentations and that you've shed a great deal of light on a few terms that she's heard and read about previously and had a great difficulty even coming to simply understand them. But what you've presented tonight has really kind of clarified many things for her. And I know she's speaking on behalf of everybody who's blowing up the chat box here too. Thank you, Dr. Cutterback. We greatly appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.